Those are residents of the recently liberated city of Kherson chanting the acronym for the Armed Forces of Ukraine. Ukrainian forces have been working on a counteroffensive to liberate the Kherson Oblast for months and, as of Friday, have liberated the regional capital and settlements around it. It's not clear how many Ukrainian and Russian soldiers were killed in the push to reclaim Kherson City and other towns and villages around it. To be clear, much of the oblast is still under Russian occupation, and more intense fighting is ahead to reclaim it all. But retaking Kherson City is indeed a major victory for Ukraine. In fact, CNN's Nick Robertson was on the scene in Kherson the day the city was liberated. Absolute euphoria here at the moment. I'm using the phone and we're communicating by the camera and by satellite. It's a, it's a bit of a chaotic mess. There's no phone signals here. The Russians have taken all that down, destroyed the, the electricity, the water, the gas. Everything here is in a bad situation. But everyone here is out celebrating in the, in the square here. People are wearing the Ukrainian flag. They're hugging the soldiers. Uh, they've come out to see how it is to have freedom and i'm joined here by yulia and olga and we're going to have a quick conversation about how it's been tell us about the last eight months yulia under occupation it was a really hard time for everyone every ukrainian family waited for our soldiers for our army so how does it feel now today to see them it's amazing wonderful Thank you very much for supporting us. We feel every day your support. Thank you so much. Can I hug you? Sure. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, Olga. Officially, the Kremlin says its troops are making a strategic retreat, but security experts, like my guest for today's show, Maria Zokina, head of regional security and conflict studies at the Democratic Initiatives Foundation in Kyiv, say that the Russians' retreat is due to the armed forces of Ukraine kicking them out, with the help of Western military aid. On this episode of Black Diplomats, Zokina and I will discuss what this latest victory means as Ukraine pushes to liberate the rest of the territories Russia has occupied since February 24th, as well as the possibility of liberating the Crimean Peninsula and the Luhansk and Donbass oblasts in the east. When I asked her to give some opening thoughts about the liberation of Kherson, Zokina said it proved just how strong Ukraine's military is and how serious Kyiv is about not leaving any of its citizens to suffer under Russian rule. First of all, Ukraine has never uh, denied from the plans uh, to continue counteroffensive activities, and it was the principal position not to sell out Ukrainian territories, but to use the Western military support, uh, use the Ukrainian uh, defense forces to liberate uh, previously occupied Russia, uh, by Russia territories of Ukraine. And this is another late signal that Ukraine really sticks with this, let's say, plan of deoccupation. Secondly, uh, when you speak exactly about Kherson. So uh, this is a big um, military victory of Ukrainian army on the one hand, and this is a big political and military defeat of Russia because Russia has played uh, with uh, the Ukrainian territories 
politically by uh, announcing so-called annexation of uh, recently occupied Ukrainian territories and actually now they can uh, cannot explain even to their domestic audience uh, how can that be uh, that they have to withdraw from as they claim their own territories. So it's absurd, I mean, from international point of view and from Ukrainian legal point of view, but nevertheless. And it will undermine the legitimacy of, uh, let's say, or the image of um, Putin as a leader inside his country. It will not bring any, let's say, mass protests or any kind of revolution. Uh, but it's very important for any dictators to um, to to have the image of strong leader uh, who hasn't, uh, who cannot be defeated, let's say. And Kherson is one of the biggest defeats and failures of Russian army as of now. And of course, thirdly, it will influence the situation because uh, it will not um, help Russia to push Ukraine to any kind of political or territorial concessions. It will, on the contrary, help Ukraine to speak uh, from the position of the force, of power, let's say, uh, in terms of any negotiations, not with Russia, but generally. So if someone will try to offer Ukraine, to propose Ukraine to, to concede somehow politically, of course, after Kherson, which is not the first victory, I remember, uh, and we should remember about uh, the Snake Island, about the rapid counteroffensive in Kharkiv region, about withdrawal of Russian troops in, from Sumy, Chernihiv, and Kiev region back in spring 2022. So all this together, this is like the, the signature, the, the signal that uh, Ukraine is capable of liberating its territory, and it will help diplomatically. Uh, to prevent any kind of pushes from someone abroad to make Ukraine, uh, you know, politically concede somehow. We're going to talk about the last part concerning a push for Ukraine to negotiate a peace deal later in the show. But I want to address some concerns that the Russian defeat may be staged and that their soldiers are planning to trap Ukrainian soldiers in the city. As Akina about this, and she told me that she really uh, does not believe that there are any traps being set by Russia. Instead, they were just flat out defeated. Russians had several scenarios, let's say, but basically, let's say two of them. So first of all, of course, they could try to defend Kherson, uh, being inside the city and try to drag Ukraine into street fighting. And that was uh, as a more challenging scenario for Ukrainian armed forces, of course. It was even more challenging scenario for local population, which would be like used as a live shield, let's say. Uh, if they are still in town, uh, there were no possibility to leave the town, uh, to leave the city. Uh, but militarily, militarily, Russian forces, which were about uh, 20,000 uh, troop, uh, 20,000 uh, altogether military staff in uh, of Russian army in Kherson, they were uh, not able to um, to stay and to fight in the city for a long period of time. Anyway, first of all, because all the logistic change uh, and support for uh, for, the, for these troops, they were interrupted several months ago when Ukraine has uh, destroyed or damaged uh, uh, several bridges which connected uh, left and right bank of Dnipro River. And uh, all the communication uh, for Russians between right and left bank, they were made due to, with the usage of 
Panton bridges and uh, ferries. And of course, if you just uh, have a stable or more or less stable occupational situation and you just need to bring foods, I don't know, some stuff uh, and some uh, ammunition, ferries is enough. Though they were targeted, by the way, during all this time by long-range um, weapons used by Ukraine. But when it comes to fighting, of course, you cannot fight effectively if you do not have logistic change uh, under your control. Uh, and that's why militarily it was logical to, um, you know, not to go into severe fightings. But of course, no one could know what the Russian plans were. And the fact that they choose to withdraw from Kherson city instead of uh, uh, starting the street fighting, uh, it's actually uh, just the result of using military logic instead of just political one. Um, but when it comes generally to, to the situation in Kherson, uh, let's not uh, underestimate the military campaign and the military counteroffensive activity which was going on before Russians have withdrawn. They, it was not a gesture of a goodwill. No one would um, uh, accept this kind of military and political defeat in, in case they were not pushed to do that. And they were pushed as a to do that as a result of uh, continuous fightings, which were uh, on their way to Kherson city around smaller towns and villages, because liberation of Kherson has started in summer and was continuing up to actually this day. I mean, the right, the right bank of uh, Dnipro River, which is part of uh, Kherson region. So um, it was a result of several factors, not just uh, the, de the decision which came to Russian uh, army from, you know, the middle of nowhere. Putin was apparently bracing for the eventual liberation of at least parts of Kherson months in advance and had been threatening the use of tactical nukes if its sovereignty, which is basically coal for lands that it stole from Ukraine and claimed as its own, was threatened. He added, I'm not bluffing when he was threatening the use of nuclear weapons. And he's been saying this for more than a month now. Here is what CNN had to say about Putin's threats when he initially made them. A senior NATO official is warning that a potential Russian nuclear strike would almost certainly trigger a physical response from many allies, potentially from the NATO alliance itself, the comments relayed to reporters from a NATO press officer came as defense ministers met to discuss how best to help Ukraine. As Russia continues its aerial bombardment of Ukraine, Putin has been making veiled threats that a nuclear strike is on the table. With me now is retired Army Major, uh, Major Mike Lyons. Uh, great to see you, Major. I appreciate it. This is a sense of where the Russians have been hitting in Ukraine over the last few days. I do want to talk, though, about these nuclear threats. Now, to be clear, U.S. officials, they say they don't think that Russia is about to use nuclear weapons. But what they do say is they are listening to these threats and taking them seriously. You worked in this field. So talk to us about, in theory, how Russia might use tactical nuclear weapons. So a tactical nuclear weapon is really a border weapon. It only has a range of anywhere between 15 and 20 miles, but it has tremendous uh, destruction capability. So you look at a situation where Russia currently has um, a doctrine that says 
we escalate with nuclear weapons to de-escalate should we be attacked conventionally. So the way things are shaping out right here, you see Russian troops on this side of the Dnieper River. And I think what's gonna, you're going to see what happen as they eventually get pushed across here, that Dnieper River becomes this natural boundary that now Russia will claim that they can fire nuclear weapons into this area, tactical nuclear weapons, that will render that area useless. You won't be able to, to have any kind of offensive operations there. But it'll also keep Ukraine troops out of it. I think the target will be a Ukraine military, and that's what that's what TAC nukes does. It, it kind of fixes the conventional force in play. It doesn't allow them to move because of the destruction capability that they have. Okay, well, Ukraine has liberated part of Kherson, so this should trigger Putin to threaten the use of tactical nukes to fend off the Ukrainian counteroffensive if we are to take Putin's threats seriously. But for all of Putin's saber-rattling over nukes, so keen adults that Russia will actually use them against Ukraine. First of all, uh, not all the decisions which were taken by Russians on the battlefield, they were rational and military logical. Sometimes they were just political. And the very beginning of this uh, war against Ukraine was not prepared from military point of view. And if Russia just, uh, if Russia was driven only by military logic, they wouldn't invade Ukraine. Um, and that's why, um, despite the fact that rationally using even to tactical nuclear weapons against Ukraine is crazy idea and it will unite against Russia, even those countries which are trying to stay a part of this, uh, let's say, conflict and doesn't support neither Ukraine nor Russia directly, uh, despite this fact, we cannot be sure that Russia will not use nuclear weapons against Ukraine because sometimes and they use the logic which is completely different from, uh, from let's say, Western style, uh, which is more rational, which counts on different arguments. Um, second, secondly, um, Ukraine and the and countries which are even in support, which are even acting in support of Ukraine. Um, we reacted, I mean, differently uh, to these nuclear threats. It, it seemed that nuclear threats were taken even much more seriously uh, abroad than in Ukraine itself. Because why Russia did use this blackmailing in order to stop Ukraine from even attempting, from even trying to uh, liberate the territories which Russia claimed to be, uh, to, to be the, the part of Russian Federation. So you think it is a bluff? Generally, yes. So at least it didn't make any changes to the perception of how Ukraine should act in relation to Russia uh, or in regards to, um, to the, what to do with the occupied territories, to liberate with the possibility that Russia will use the nuclear weapons in response to the, those attempts or refuse from liberation. So this threat, they didn't influence the principal position that counteroffensive should continue. Uh, but at the same time, the probability of usage of nuclear uh, weapons against Ukraine shouldn't be treated just as pure bluff. So there is still a possibility that Russia will use it, not necessarily as a uh, tactical nuclear weapons. Another scenario is that Russia might organize the, some kind of um, human, uh, human-made disaster on, a, on the biggest nuclear power plant in Europe, which is occupied by Russians right now, this is a Parisian nuclear power plant, which is uh, under the control of Russian 
not only military but political uh, control because Rosatom, the main Russian energy company on atomic energy, they have uh, openly, uh, you know, incorporated the Parisian nuclear power plant uh, uh, in the system of uh, Rosatom companies and enterprises. So they can organize some kind of nuclear disaster there. And by the way, Kachovska Dam, dam uh, which is uh, actually there, uh, very close to Kherson, to the city of Kherson, uh, it was mined and Russia doesn't refuse, from, doesn't deny the fact that uh, Kharkov Dam was, um, was mined. Uh, and the fact why it was mined and why Russia might be preparing for some kind of disaster on the Zaporizhia nuclear power plant is that in case there is uh, the problems with dam functioning, uh, the, Russian, uh, the, um, the water supply uh, to the cooling system of nuclear reactors on the Parisian nuclear power plant will be stopped, will be damaged. So they cannot, they doesn't, and there will be, we all understand what, so the nuclear power reactors will explode or something will happen different to them, so the leak of radiation. Um, and, and, and that is also a nuclear scenario, but just with the different, let's say, steps uh, taken to, to, to implement it. While the liberation of Kherson city is a major victory, Russians are still entrenched in the east of the Oblast and further south, going down to the coast in areas like Skodovsk, for example. Months of fighting for the rest of the region is expected and many more lives will be lost. But how much patience is there for a prolonged war in the west that has caused energy instability not only in Ukraine but the rest of Europe? Putin relies on Western fatigue that could force leaders in Europe and the United States to rethink its financial and military commitments to Kyiv. Also, the fears of this war escalating into a nuclear conflict are very real, something that the Biden administration and leaders on both sides of the aisle in Congress all want to avoid. So, to be fair, there are conversations around the need for Ukraine to brace for eventual negotiations. However, some of those conversations have become a bit controversial, particularly a letter published and then pulled by the Congressional Progressive Caucus a few weeks ago. The letter, which called for continued military support of Ukraine, but urged peace negotiations, was seen as dated. Well, for one, it was drafted all the way back in the summer. And also, was it was accused of lacking a clear pathway to what a peace agreement would look like. Though that letter was pulled, one of the signees, Congressman Rohana, told Democracy Now! that he had no regrets about the letter's language. Congressman Rohana, I also want to ask you about the letter you signed with 29 other members of the Congressional Progressive Caucus urging the Biden administration to pursue direct negotiations with Russia for a ceasefire in Ukraine while continuing to arm the Ukrainian military. The letter stated, the letter stated in part, we urge you to pair the military and economic support the United States has provided to Ukraine with a proactive diplomatic push, redoubling efforts to seek a realistic framework for a ceasefire. This is consistent with your recognition that there's going to have to be a negotiated settlement here and your concern that Vladimir Putin doesn't have a way out right now, and I'm trying to figure out what we do about that. After facing a backlash, Progressive Caucus Chair Pramila Jayapal withdrew the letter 
a day later. Do you agree with her decision? Do you support the demands of this letter for negotiations? I stand by the letter, Amy. I think the letter is common sense. It's only in the Washington Beltway that uh, diplomacy is somehow considered a scarlet letter. I have supported Ukraine. I will continue to support and stand with Ukraine in terms of the aid and the military they need to defend their sovereignty. I have been very clear that Putin's war is illegal, brutal, unprovoked. But we have to also look at the facts on the ground. Putin is engaged in barbarism. He's uh, striking uh, electricity units in across Ukraine. Uh, he has 300,000 troops there. They can mobilize to 3 million, and there is the risk of nuclear war. This president has said responsibly that while we support Ukraine, we need to do everything possible to de-escalate the conflict, to make sure that we aren't escalating to nuclear war, and to engage in negotiated conversations to prevent nuclear war, accidental war, uh, with uh, the Russian counterparts. And the Secretary of Defense actually has done that. This letter simply affirms that while we stand with Ukraine, we also have those diplomatic channels. I didn't see anything, frankly, different than the thoughtful voices that the president uh, has relied on, and also things that Admiral Mullen has said, that Joseph Dunford has said, that, frankly, President Obama in his Pod Save America broadcast uh, said. So, listen, Ukraine wants this war to end. That's very clear. But Ukraine has momentum after liberating Kherson. As Kyiv sees it, the more they weaken Russia's military, the stronger its negotiating power will be. Zokina told me that she doesn't see any real scenarios in which Russia will bow out of this war gracefully because any negotiated peace that Russia would agree to will come at the expense of Ukrainian security. Which is why, Zokina told me, Ukraine needs to continue fighting until Putin's military is no longer able to push into Ukraine. So if your interest is to have uh, more security in the West, in the Eastern Europe, in, uh, in the Europe itself, on the borders of NATO and, and the European Union, then you have to make Russia be defeated and not able to... Uh, to organize another assault, uh, neither from uh, neither against Ukraine nor against any other Ukraine's neighbors or other Eastern Europe uh, countries like Baltic states or Poland. So, if the interest is to have security and the and, and sustainability in the region, if to have not just the temporary ceasefire, but to have the peaceful settlement which will really bring the real peace and predictability to how the actors are actually acting, then you cannot rely on the idea which will include preserving capacities, uh, preserving capacities of Russian Federation to invade again. Uh, you cannot accept the idea of partial occupation of Ukrainian territory because it will be just uh, the frozen conflict from where Russia will again organize another assault like they did after they occupied Crimea and at that time 30% of Ukrainian Donbas back in 2014. And of course, 
you can sh you you should make Russian Federation not be simply capable of uh, of another assault in terms of their military capacities, uh, and all this is like with within this framework. But if your interests, I talk to when I talk to to, to the people with some offers like, uh, if your interest is just to have a temporary. Um, which might mean just several months ceasefire, of course, you should push for negotiations, but please be aware that as a result, you will receive no ceasefire, no peace, peace settlement, and uh, you will have uh, not, let's say, weakened uh, Russia, which will be able to, to uh, organize another assault uh, to Poland, to Baltic states, when you come to, to Baltic states or to Poland, the public discussion here is uh, very simple. They're saying if Ukraine lose, uh, if Ukraine loses, we are the next. And that's why their position in terms of uh, debates within the NATO or European Union, uh, as strong, let's say, as uh, sometimes hawkish and radical, uh, to in comparison to to some other European Union states, because they understand that uh, this is the destiny of uh, the European um, security architecture is being decided right now um, on the battlefield between Ukraine and Russia. When I think about negotiations, I don't see any negotiation in which Russia would not only just say we're going to give up on the territories that we took post-2014, I don't see them saying that we're going to withdraw from Crimea or Donbass or Luhansk, where you are from. Yes, exactly. This is a very simple, uh, very simple logic. Russia just simply wants to preserve its control, uh, its uh, control over the territories which uh, Russia occupies as of now. And if Russia doesn't want to liberate these territories uh, neither militarily, uh, I mean, voluntarily just to withdraw the troops, nor diplomatically, and they want to start negotiations, uh, the aim of which will be just to make Ukraine agree that Ukraine will lose part of its territory, then these negotiations might, uh, will not work out. It will not be acceptable because the very the very principle of international law, the very principle of UN Charter, the very principle of Ukrainian diplomatic position, and very important Ukrainian society in the times of the war. Ninety percent of the people, according to face-to-face -face public opinion polls, stated that, that Ukraine should not make any political concessions to Russia. Uh, and and should fight uh, and people believe that Ukraine will win this war and liberate its territories. So altogether, if it is not about liberation of Ukrainian territory, then these negotiations are not constructive. They are just about temporary uh, pause, which will serve for Russia's interests, making Russian army have a rest, uh, prepare for another attacks, and go back to the battlefield to uh, to conclude with their so-called operation next year. Uh, that, that that's very that's very simple, and as of now, it's obvious. I want to thank Maria for taking time to come on the show to talk about Kherson and what these developments mean. 
As we close out this episode of Black Diplomats, I'll remind our listeners that the Democrats have retained control of the Senate, meaning that President Joe Biden will have support to carry out much of his policy agenda without too many GOP roadblocks. There's a runoff in December in the Georgia Senate race between Senator Raphael Warnock and Herschel Walker, but Democrats have the majority they need already. This is important for several reasons, mainly given that Trump-supported candidates are trying to win seats in Washington, and many of their talking points include cutting support for Ukraine and doing a America First approach to their domestic and foreign policy. So the Democrats win in the Senate is a very big deal for America, but also for Ukraine. So Republicans are still expected to win the House, even though with a slim majority, there is a slim chance for Democrats to eke out a victory in that chamber as well. We will find out the results of that chamber's um, election, whether or not it's going to go Democrat or Republican sometime next week. Either way, the Democratic Senate control is good news for Ukraine. I'm Terrell Starr. Thank you for listening. Be sure to go to iTunes and give us a five-star rating because it really helps us out. You can also rate us on your favorite podcast platforms besides iTunes. We're distributed everywhere. Talk to you next week.